every time I do this, at least one person will come up to me uh, and say, basically, oh, man, dude, oh, I loved your talk, but, you know, the Jersey Devil's real, man. I saw it in the woods. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's, there's no comeback for that. <laughs> There's, yeah. no witty, there's no witty rejoinder when uh when an 80 year old lady comes up and says you know i i saw the we were we were stopped on the jersey turn uh, on the on the parkway at a rest stop and i saw the jersey devil in the woods you know what, what am i supposed to do intellectually bludgeon an 80 year old <laughs> <laughs> i'm Paige, and i'm megan And this is Spooky Science Sisters. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you are listening to episode 26 of Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. Before we introduce today's guests, we want to remind you of a few ways you can support the show. This includes several free options like sharing with a friend, subscribing, and leaving us a rating and a review. We also recently started a Buy Me a Coffee account, which is linked in the show notes. You have the option to either make a one-time donation or become a member and support us monthly. There are some perks associated with each of these options, so if you're interested in helping the show grow even more, please check that out. For this episode, we are joined by a guest, Dr. Brian Regal. Brian is a science history professor at Keene University in New Jersey, a skeptic and writer. He has published books on both Sasquatch Sasquatch and the Jersey Devil, and is here with us today to discuss the origins of cryptozoology. Uh, So, Brian, welcome. We're super excited. Before we get started, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little about your background and the work that you do? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Brian Regal. I'm Associate Professor for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine at Kane University in New Jersey. Uh, And I teach about and write a lot uh, about the more dubious realms of the history of science. <laughs> um, I, uh, my, my, my doctorate is in modern history and literature with a specialty in the history of science, uh, which means I can explain to you why climate change is real, why vaccinations are safe, why evolution is real, and I can do it all while quoting the romantic poets. <laughs> That's great. Oh, and, uh, I, and despite the, what I write about, I've, I've never seen a ghost, never seen a UFO. Uh, I've never seen anybody spontaneously combust. <laughs> uh, although I've wanted certain people to do that right in front of me and it never works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no such thing as Sasquatch, Bigfoot or the Jersey Devil. Oh, okay. <laughs> I usually like to get that out of the way, you know, right up front. You know, yeah, because I'm sure that's... That just so no one... 
gets fooled that they think I'm going to do something other than that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we we figured. <laughs> uh, yeah. But importantly, Brian is a, another guest who's probably too fancy to be on our little podcast, but we're excited about it. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Did- <laughs> we did go and look at your uh, CV that you have online, uh, and I was tickled to see that you have on there that you were accused of being the Antichrist in sixth grade. Yes, yeah, Sister Louise, my nemesis in Cap- <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, uh, we, uh, one time we had to we had to uh, draw in art class. We had to draw pictures of our favorite saints. You know, because mm-hmm. Catholics are into saints and uh so i decided to do saint lucy and i drew her holding a switchblade um <laughs> i don't know if, i don't know if you know the story of saint lucy um in, in in order to not have to marry a pagan prince uh she took a knife and she gouged out her own eyes uh, oh no unattractive and 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 when sister louise saw me draw lucy with a switchblade she she threw the book at me, and um, I mean, I mean, literally, she she picked up a book and threw it at me and hit me in the head with it. Oh my and, gosh! Uh, so that's there's my life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you were being pretty accurate to the story, though. So <laughs> that's what I thought. You know. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. And then I, I also saw that you teach a course called the history of pseudoscience in America and poked yeah, around I'm doing, online. I'm doing that course this semester right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah. I saw that I was able to, uh, from your website, you get the link to the, the syllabus and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that sounds like a super awesome course. So yeah, it is actually, <laughs> I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> that these were not options when when I was in college. I don't think yeah. Albion taught anything like that, did they, Paige? Uh, no, not not that I know of. Yeah, uh, I, can't, I mean, I can't say at the time that I necessarily would have, you know, looked. But I mean, going back, like I, I wish that I would have gone to a school or had had thought to take classes like that because that sounds far more interesting than some of the classes <laughs> I took. <laughs> I also yeah. do a course on the history of alchemy. That's super oh, cool. Oh, how cool. <laughs> yeah, which that was <laughs> one of my later silly questions that we had written down was that since you do stuff with uh, history of science and alchemy, I was like, oh, have you met any mysterious vampires in your time? <laughs> no, but I was talking about werewolf once. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, there a, you go. A, a, a few years ago, I wrote an article for a British magazine called The Fortean Times. I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. Not you should be. It's it's terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wrote this article called Where Have All the Werewolves Gone? Uh, in which I looked at how uh, in the past, in the early modern period, uh, werewolves were something people were afraid of actually literally running into in the woods. Okay. Now that's not really a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what people are afraid of running into in the woods now is like Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Uh, and so the, the, the one monster has been replaced by the other one. And, uh, I, you know, I got a lot of interesting feedback and, uh, this woman from Brooklyn wrote to me, uh, very angry. <laughs> Uh, and she said, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I'm just another one of these egghead 
uh, scholars. I get yelled at a lot on social media. Uh, uh, and she said, I, you know, I should be ashamed to call myself a professor because I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, werewolves are real. And I should be very careful uh, it, that I don't uh, make werewolves angry uh, because oh. they'll come and visit me in the middle of the night. And she finished her, uh, her, her letter uh, by saying the reason she knew all this uh, <laughs> was because she herself was a werewolf. Ah, of course. <laughs> That was fun. Interesting. Yeah. That's, I'm like safe to career. say. <laughs> safe to say they they have not come to find you. No, not <laughs> yet. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've been saved that fate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Lucky you. Yeah. So I ask about the vampire because you might not be familiar with, but Paige and I, well, I just got done reading it. Paige is in the middle, but we read the Discovery of Witches series, okay. which mm-hmm. she is, the main character is like a historian of science. And oh, really? She's I, I, specifically, familiar. Yeah, she specifically does like history of of alchemical stuff and yeah. yeah but anyway it's like you know she meets a mysterious vampire and they fall in love and of yeah course. so <laughs> as, as one does <laughs> in in our uh one of our previous episodes i described it as a mature twilight so <laughs> you know the, the funny thing about twilight is that okay so you you have the 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 hot sexy vampire mm-hmm and the hot, buff, sexy werewolf, mm-hmm. uh, and they're fighting over the girl. Mm-hmm. That's so unrealistic because, <laughs> because if a vampire and a werewolf were, were fighting over a girl, they wouldn't be fighting over her to see who gets to be in love with her. They would be fighting over her to see who gets to kill her. And eat her. <laughs> <laughs> so totally, un- totally unrealistic. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, well. So in our intro, we did, you know, call you a skeptic, but I think it's important to note that in many of the interviews that I've listened to, um, I think Megan's listened to quite a few of them as well, with you in them, um, you have stated specifically that you are not a debunker. No, I'm not. Uh, um, and so I'd like if you could, if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, I, I I'm not a I'm not a debunker. The Wall Street Journal once called me a debunker, but no, I I I'm a historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not. Uh, I don't go out to to my to my mind. A debunker is someone who intentionally goes out to prove that some belief system is invalid, uh, to prove that UFOs don't exist, or to prove that Bigfoot doesn't exist. And that's not what I do at all. Uh, I'm I'm really uninterested in whether or not uh, Bigfoot is real or the Jersey Devil is real. When Frank Esposito, my co-author, and I sat down to write the the um, secret history of the Jersey Devil, proving the thing was real or not was was literally the last thing on our minds. Uh, I'm a historian, I'm a trained historian, and I approach all this material with the eye of a historian. Uh, to tell the story of whatever that phenomena, person's life, event is. And if what happens is I show that this thing is not there or it's there in a way different from what most people think, you know, that's that's just the luck of the draw. 
you know, I, I follow the evidence where it takes me. Uh, uh, I'm not out to prove these things are real or not. So that's why I, I resist the, uh, the, the label of debunker. I am skeptical about mm-hmm. a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. But again, that's not really the point of what I do. Right. Yeah. I was just trying to sit here thinking, like, are we even debunkers? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we tend to go in every topic thinking we know that like it doesn't exist or that it's not real though several mm-hmm. times through episodes we get to the end and think like i don't know maybe what we thought in the beginning was wrong so <laughs> so maybe we think we're debunkers but we we don't know <laughs> um i would say more like i feel like i go into each episode thinking that thinking i feel more positive that there could be something spooky going on and then at the end i'm like no this is not spooky at all <laughs> We're not paranormal at all. I, I, I think that's one of the the, the, the downside to this stuff because mm-hmm. a lot of these topics are kind of interesting and you know even romantic uh, in a number of different ways. And it would be nice, uh, I think, uh, uh, to to believe that there really are eight foot tall, seven hundred pound hairy primates wandering around the Pacific Northwest. Uh, you know, or a strange sort of horsey thing with wings wandering around the pine barrens of New Jersey or or that that people do actually turn into werewolves or that witches <laughs> do can do some of the things. Uh, and and it, and it can be a little, uh, you know, disappointing when you find out not so much. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've talked several times that there are several topics that we're like, we're like kind of wish did exist. It would be more fun. Yeah, but we also talk frequently about how when you look into the real life stuff, sometimes it's like, well, that's scarier than (laughs) whatever (laughs) paranormal thing people say is going on. Okay, so do we want to move on to something spooky, Paige? Yeah, sure. Well, I am going to go first because I got very excited about this news story that came out. So something spooky has traditionally been has traditionally been us talking about if something spooky happened in our everyday lives but turns out we have become boring um yeah and and megan (laughs) said she's going first but like let me just tell you nothing spooky happened to me this week so like (laughs) megan's just gonna (laughs) i'm just gonna go megan's just gonna go (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i was like fine this week uh it will just be sort of spooky news so it's still something spooky it's just you know didn't happen to us it's just news related because i really loved this story uh so i found an article that I thought was appropriate for today called For Centuries, Big Sur Residents Have Seen Dark Watchers in the Mountains, which was uh, published on the San Francisco Gate website. And uh, it's interesting because other articles and people are now saying like, oh, are these like a new cryptid? And I've seen a lot of people in sort of the, you know, paranormal podcast cryptid Twitter sphere posting about it. So apparently, if you look up on mountain ridges in the San Lucia mountain range in California, uh, and particularly at dusk, you might see large figures silhouetted against the sky that are apparently up to 10 feet tall and sometimes wearing, like, appear like they're wearing hats or cloaks. 
And I guess that there are, they say there are centuries of legends about them, uh, including from the Native Americans from the area. Uh, the Spanish explorers who showed up in the 1700s called them Los Vigilantes Oscuros, which is the Dark Watchers. Uh, and others have since cited them and just like reported feelings of being watched from the hills above them. So that's just creepy and fun. Um, <laughs> but they sound well-dressed. But they sound well-dressed, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're stylish. Uh, yes, yeah, the hats and the cloaks. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So I thought it was really interesting that everybody was sharing them and people were starting to say like, you know, people were supposed to be like, oh, have you heard of this? Like, is this a new, you know, a new like sort of weird cryptid or whatever? Uh, because the article specifically addresses like it wraps up with talking about how skeptics might explain them. So it was just sort of like an interesting, I don't know. An interesting, like, sociological thing, or I don't know what it is, but that me reading the article, I was reading the skeptical explanations and thinking, like, this seems super re reasonable, but, like, my sense is that <laughs> a lot of people that were sort of connected to on social media were like, oh, my gosh, there's mysterious creatures in the mountains that, like, actually exist. So, so yeah, so I thought it was appropriate for today. But the two, before we... Uh, chit chat about that the two skeptical explanations for these was what i thought of immediately one was that it was just pareidolia relating to like your eyes seeing shadows like long shadows from trees on the ridges that are obscured by fog or mist and especially since they're often seen at dusk or dawn that it's just like your brain is saying, oh, that's a person standing up there, but it's not really. Uh, and then apparently there's also something called a Brocken Spectre, which is named for a particular phenomenon on Brocken Peak in the Harz Mountains in Germany. And this is a quote from the article, but it says, it happens when shadows like those of a hiker are cast on particularly misty mountain peaks. If the sun is behind the observer, the mist plays with the shadow, making it look huge and menacing. The shadow can even dart away as the mist suddenly shifts or breaks apart in the breeze. And that's like part of this. People will be like, you know, they'll all of a sudden go away really quickly. So I was like, yep, that seems reasonable. Like, <laughs> it's just people like either seeing shadows of a hiker or another person or their brains are just saying like there's something there and also just like the feeling of being watched it's like well you're like in these like misty mountains at dusk and like things are kind of creepy like that just seems like i don't know normal stuff so anyway that's my thought <laughs> okay okay so brian did anything spooky happen to you recently that you wanted to share um, no, I, I, you know, I, as I said before, I, I've had, uh, no real spooky stuff ever happened to me. I've never seen a ghost. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I never saw a UFO or any, anybody levitating. Uh, and you know, I, 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 I feel left out sometimes because, uh, I haven't had these experiences. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It would. I well, yeah, we said lots of times that it's like I just I just want to see a ghost or something. <laughs> well, we can move on to our discussion of cryptozoology. Uh so Paige, do you want to 
start us off with that? Yeah. And first things first, we just want to kind of talk about what cryptozoology is. And we've discussed a couple of cryptids on previous episodes. Uh, We did do a full episode on Sasquatch, which I believe was episode six. And I think it was that same episode that we had mentioned um, the Loch Ness Monster as like one of our short and spookies at the end of the episode. We'll definitely do more in the future on specific cryptids. But for today's episode, we wanted to focus specifically on the origins of cryptozoology. So what is it? Uh, It's the study of and search for animals and especially legendary animals, usually in order to evaluate the possibility of their existence. And these legendary animals are referred to as cryptids. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out that that the base word for that uh, cryptic is used elsewhere in science for variations that can't be seen with the naked eye. So, for example, I come from an igneous petrology background, which is the study of igneous or either volcanic or magmatic rocks. But you can have these deposits that have what we call cryptic zoning, which is where their chemical composition varies across you know, whatever outcrop or deposit you're looking at, but there's no visible evidence to the naked eye. So yeah, it's just, it's sort of an example of like co-opting a scientific term a little bit for something that's a little bit more pseudoscience. But cryptids span a range of plausibility from, you know, the belief that, you know, another hominid or primate is roaming around the wilderness like Bigfoot uh, to what I would think are more dubious things like there's a winged mothman who has some mythical power to foretell an upcoming disaster. Yeah. So I guess my first question just about cryptozoology for you, Brian, is related to like, why do you think people are just so eager to believe in their existence? Like, for example, I read a statistic that 16% of Americans believe in Bigfoot. And there have been like over 400 sightings since the 1940s. As a historian, I don't really, that, that's, I think, more of a psychological question. Why? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, I, you know, as I said before, I think there's a certain romantic aspect to it. Uh, the idea, uh, I, I think what I've talked to a lot of people, self-described uh, cryptozoologists over the years, and I think one of the things which tracks them is the is the kind of adventure aspect of going out into the woods and you know spotting one of these creatures that uh, that, that that some people say is real and some people say it isn't uh, you know the sort of the thrill of the hunt kind of thing mm-hmm. um, yeah and and humans seem to have been seeing strange creatures. Uh, you know, I'm sure our Australian Pythocene ancestors saw weird stuff in the shadows at night that scared the crap out of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it seems to be a kind of universal, no matter where you go in the world, uh, regardless of of ethnic background or religious, uh, you know, uh, background, people see weird stuff. It just mm-hmm. seems to be a, a, a human trait. It may be a, an evolutionary adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, to help us survive that if we're if if we if we see stuff that seems a little peculiar mm-hmm. uh, our our reactions often to back away from it 
mm-hmm. uh, and that can be a survival tactic. Uh, you know, the, the the way we the way humans always see f- we see faces everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and that is likely some sort of evolutionary adaptation, survival adaptation, so that when you saw another creature like yourself, you would know, oh, OK, this is a friend. Uh, and when you saw a, a, a 1,500 pound cave bear, you know, <laughs> I should try to go up to it and talk to him because that could be dangerous. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, our brains evolved. We were constantly as we move through our environment, we're constantly looking at things and we're constantly seeing faces because our our brains have evolved uh, to do that in order to be safe. Yeah, and I've definitely heard similar things to that before. And it's funny because <laughs> uh, it's funny that you, you mentioned, yeah, that concept of like potentially evolutionary um, or related to evolution or part of our, our background that we sort of fear things that are unfamiliar because I've been <laughs> listening lately to a couple podcasts, which is a sort of unrelated, uh, but that talk about like black eyed children, because I was thinking like, we should do this on here. But yeah, it's like sort of just that idea that like, oh, it's something that's sort of like us, but also it's just there's something wrong here they're a little bit different or like all the yeah anyway uh and the other thing about bigfoot i think that you mentioned and that that we had learned when we did the bigfoot episode some time ago was that yeah like some of it is this sort of romantic idea of like you know here's this creature that's survived all this time and like can just live in the wilderness and like hasn't been you know destroyed by us so (laughs) it's like romantic notion of like living out in the woods and yeah doing your own thing i guess something that i wanted to say earlier you had mentioned that like 16 percent of americans believe in bigfoot and i just like that's a crazy number to me because i don't know that i i guess i haven't asked everybody i've met hey do you believe in bigfoot but i can't say that i currently like family members friends have anybody that i know that believes Encrypteds in general. Um, yeah. Do you know anyone, Megan? I'm assuming Brian. You've probably met like all sorts of people who. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like gotten some angry emails about it. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I I give talks on this. Well, not in the last year, but um, you know, in the before time, I um, uh, you know, I, I regularly give talks to at libraries and civ- civics groups and 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 such. And uh, it, it, it's it's a fascinating thing because I'll I'll get up there and I'll, I'll give this forty five minute talk with slide you know PowerPoint and everything, uh, and when it's over you know there's there's always the the line of people who want to come up and you know speak to you personally, and you know oh thanks for coming and I loved your talk and all that, and inevitably um, every time I do this at least one person will come up to me. Uh, and say basically, oh man, dude, oh, I loved your talk, but you know, the Jersey Devil's real, man. I saw it in the woods. <laughs> and you know, there's, there's, there's no comeback for that. <laughs> there's, yeah. no witty, there's no witty rejoinder when uh, when an 80 year old lady comes up and says, you know, I, I saw the we were we were stopped on the Jersey turn uh, on the on the parkway at a rest stop. And I saw the Jersey devil in the woods. You know, what, what am I supposed to do? Intellectually bludgeon an 80 year old? 
<laughs> I, I, you know, and I, I, oh, really? Yes. Oh, that, oh, that's not, oh, that, that's interesting. Really? You saw it? Okay. Well, great. You know, <laughs> neat. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Get lost, yeah. Yeah. That's so, yeah. That would be really tough. Like, what are you even going to say? <laughs> Poor old woman who <laughs> talks about this stuff. Uh, yeah. But I mean, really, how do you respond to anybody? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you asked me, like, do I know anybody? Yeah. Who, like, actually thinks? I don't think so. And I mean, you know, 16% of Americans, like, if that number is right, is a lot. I mean, it's a lot of people. But it's also, like, compared to the number of people who believe in, like, ghosts, for example, like, I think that's, like, 50% if not a little bit Oh yeah, more. I know like a ton of people who believe in ghosts. Right. Um or that like you know alien abductions even. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is funny to me because we talked about this before like scientifically I think Bigfoot is one of the more likely things to actually exist. Like do I think that it does? No. <laughs> but <laughs> In terms of like it being possible, of all the various cryptids, uh, Bigfoot is the one which is, from an evolutionary standpoint, the most uh, plausible. Let's say, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. and I and I don't think it's real. I've I, I've never seen any evidence where, you know, I, I'd like to think I'm a fairly honest guy. I've I, I've I've looked at lots of photographs, supposed photographs of Bigfoot. And mm -hmm. other anomalous primates and and tons of video footage, and I've I've never seen one where I said, "Wow, that wow, that looks real." Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but it has the most plausibility to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> if, if Bigfoot is real. It's a primate of some kind. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the fossil record uh, is fairly clear that there were some rather biggish. Uh, primates uh, in the in the fossil past, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. um, the Jersey Devil, on the other hand, uh, you know, there's <laughs> really no. It, it 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 is so against everything we know about yeah. uh, evolution. Uh, you know, you you can't have a a, a quadruped with wings. <laughs> yeah. Because that, it's, it's not really a quadruped then it's a what would it be with six you know six arms uh, yeah and then you uh, get into all yeah. kinds of problems about okay well if it's got you know four legs and it's got two wings the wings are 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 arms and legs as well which means you have to have a whole extra set of shoulder mechanics uh, which have to attach to a you know a rib cage, and if you have a second rib cage, what goes inside the second rib cage? Is yeah. there a whole <laughs> organs? You know, uh, so you just you just wind up going down this road where it just gets increasingly mechanically, anatomically uh, improbable. You know, so so right. there's no Pegasus. There's no um, uh, what are the uh, the word just flew right out of my head the the half horse half human oh a centaur centaur thank you yeah <laughs> uh, you know same thing yeah you, you have all these problems from from a from an evolutionary <laughs> anatomical point of view right well and like the other thing about the Jersey Devil is that like 
some woman gave birth to it or whatever, like in New Jersey. So yeah, yeah, that's that, that's that's a bit problematic. As I well. don't think I knew that. I didn't. And then, like while we were while I was looking at stuff for this episode, I like I don't. I'm unclear that I really knew what the Jersey Devil was <laughs> before I started well, you know, looking. I was like, wait a second. There's, there's a wonderful and informative book out. There is <laughs> that you might consider. You know checking on uh, <laughs> very, very you know detail oriented uh uh exciting it's an exciting read <laughs> uh, you know so you might we might check that out uh, yeah yeah well and we still have to do a jersey devil episode so i think uh when we get to that point we'll definitely have to check that book that you're talking about out yes <laughs> it would be helpful <laughs> <laughs> it's both fun and link to it. excellent <laughs> uh okay but we won't make you talk a ton about the jersey devil because i know you've been doing a lot of that since the Thanks. book came I, out. I appreciate that yeah. <laughs> relatively recently but i just wanted to point out like yeah how preposterous it is that it's like um this did not come out of somebody like <laughs> what is happening um <laughs> Okay. Uh, but yeah, what we're here to talk about. So that's, you know, what cryptozoology is. And I'm sure we could keep talking about that forever. But you've done some really interesting work on sort of, I guess, where the whole, where cryptozoology even comes from and like the origins of, of this. And you sent us uh, an article that you had written uh, called Richard Owen and the Sea Serpent, which was a really good read. So that was fun. But yeah, Paige, did you want to dive into that a little? Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I put like a very, very brief kind of overview of the article. So please, at any point, Brian, jump in and if okay. you think I've missed something or don't, don't be afraid to cut me off. So uh, the article covers, um, it really talks about a man named Richard Owen, who is a paleontologist in the 1800s. And basically, there are several sightings of what is considered a giant sea snake or a sea serpent. Owen believes that these sightings were just misidentifications of other animals. And, and for example, um, one of these sightings he says is probably just mating whales. Owen's belief was that paleontology and zoology should be based off of tangible evidence. So these eyewitness accounts wasn't really weren't enough to say that this sea serpent existed. And so the sea serpent claim lacked evidence. So he rejected the sea serpent idea entirely. Yeah. And I thought it was cool that this was a this is related to sea serpents and like because of the times I had looked into stuff before that like you know if you look at old maps you know they drew monsters in uncharted areas and even like real creatures like whales and stuff they would draw with like having these sort of like monster heads on them and you know you get a bunch of sailors out in the middle of the ocean and like maybe they think you know these are like normal behavior, stuff like breaching and stuff like that, like might look aggressive or scary to them. So it makes total sense to me that, yeah, this guy would think like, mm, no, you guys are just seeing whales. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> Brian, yeah, do you have any, uh, I guess, uh, can you elaborate, I guess, some on, you know, the the path that, that Richard Owen took in, in terms of, of reaching these conclusions or like how he you know came around to sort of reject this concept that we can rely on eyewitness reports 
Yeah, uh, uh, Richard Owen was a very well-known English paleontologist, biologist in the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, friend, well, I don't know if friends is the right word, but uh, contemporary <laughs> of Charles Darwin and T.H. Huxley and all those sort of golden age evolution uh, 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 guys. And he was well known in his time, uh, in you know, publicly. He was a tutor to the Queen's children, so he had political clout. And uh, you know, he he helped found the British Museum. Uh, you know, so he's he's someone with a lot of bona fides and public public knowledge and you know, political clout. Mm-hmm. And because of that position, he starts getting sent by the British Admiralty, they were getting these reports from ship captains and even warship captains about seeing these strange animals. And so the the British government started funneling these reports to Owen for sort of comment. Uh, and what I found fascinating about this was that the, the reason the British government gets in, interested in this is because they think Maybe you can make money off of this. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we hunt whales and we make money off of whales. Maybe there we could we could start hunting sea monsters, uh, and maybe there's <laughs> some aspect of sea monster anatomy that we could cash in on. Great, uh, you know, with a, maybe a special kind of oil or something. And so they felt this was worth looking at. Uh, mm-hmm. And so Owen is getting all this, and he gets some of the most famous uh, reports of the day, probably the, the, the most famous historical uh, sea monster report, that of the HMS Daedalus, uh, which was a British warship on, on a cruise coming home from the Mediterranean. Uh, and in the 18, uh, I'm going to say the 1850s sometime, you could double check mm-hmm. that. Uh, and they see what they think is a sea monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the captain writes up a report and puts it in his logbook and and you know and sends it in and uh and so owen gets a hold of this and looks at it uh and he decided that well there's no evidence uh one of the things that that annoyed owen about all this was that the the people's willingness to say well uh, a a british sea captain would never lie yeah <laughs> Uh, and you know, a, a British sea captain is sea captain is sober uh, and intelligent, and and wouldn't exaggerate, and all of this. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it mu- so if if uh, you know the captain says he saw this thing, it must be real. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Owen was like, "Well, wait a minute. Uh, just because somebody is a sea captain doesn't mean they can't be fooled, or they they or or they could lie." Uh, and so he was really one of the first people to argue against accepting these sort of sightings because of eyewitnesses alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a problem with the whole concept of, of eyewitnesses. Uh, and so he got a, he had a bunch of these, he was sent a bunch of these uh, reports and I found in, in the British museum's library in their archive, uh, Owen collected up all this stuff, uh, letters that were sent to him, and, and you know, and and drawings and newspaper articles, and he put them in this giant fat uh, scrapbook that is mm. there that you can go and look at with his notes on it. And 
essentially what he came to argue was that these were mostly misidentifications of mm. uh, mostly of sea mammals. Uh, and he thought that uh, sea cows and other large sort of odd looking sea mammals that people didn't see very often, even people who were experienced at sea didn't mm -hmm. see very often. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we often get this with, with people. Well, uh, if, if this person has been living in, you know, up in the mountains, in the woods, all their lives, they know the difference between a bear and a, and a, and a hairy primate. Maybe not. Uh, you know, just because you 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 live in a certain place all your life doesn't always mean you're not going to see something, you know, oh, a pilot, if a pilot says they saw a flying saucer, they must be right because pilots are used to seeing things and they know what airplanes look like and all this. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, this was this was an issue. And Owen, uh, in the scrapbook, the, there are these wonderful drawings that he does himself. He said, you know, I think what might, going by some of these descriptions, what some of these people might have been seeing were whales uh, copulating. And mm -hmm. he, drew, he makes these <laughs> incredible drawings, sort of crude little drawings. You know, he, wasn't not a, he was not a trained artist uh, of whales having sex. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so when, as a historian, and you're, you're, you're going through this material uh, to turn a page and suddenly see these drawings of, you know, <laughs> whale sex, it's... You know, it, it, it's one of the reasons why I love being historian because you find this stuff. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, and so he basically was arguing that mm -hmm. there really was no believable hard evidence for these creatures. Yeah. And I'm sure when you started studying this, you were like, oh, I did not expect to be like looking at crude drawings of whale sex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> while I'm doing research. You can't, you can't make, you can't get yourself ready for something like that. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I think when we talked to um, Chris Cogswell a couple weeks ago, that was, you know, one of the points that he brought up the, with aliens and stuff is is people seem like they're so quick with, you know, reports of seeing cryptids or UFOs or whatever it is to, like, sort of get affronted, you know, when you say, like, oh, well, you know, maybe that was something else. And it's like, well, not, you know people aren't lying they just you know they don't know they don't what know. they've seen <laughs> like, so yeah it's just funny how people sort of like just get like entrenched in this idea of like no <laughs> i definitely saw something weird but anyway <laughs> your brain is weird that's what we've learned doing this podcast yeah, human beings are weird yeah and human beings are weird yes yeah yeah i guess related to Speaking of human beings being weird, um, <laughs> speaking of uh, weird drawings of of whales, um, yeah, like what's what's the weirdest thing that you've you think you've come across? Like looking into all these things. <laughs> uh, well, whale sex is you know that's that's up there. Yeah, it's um, the weirdest thing I ever came across. I, I I'm not sure if it's weird, but it certainly is peculiar. There was, uh, and I wrote about this in the in my searching for Sasquatch book. There, there's this whole sort of cast of characters uh, from the 1950s and 60s who are running around looking for um, Bigfoot here in North America. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a story about this guy Rennie De Hinden, who was a Swiss Canadian uh, who gets oh, sort of fascinated by by 
all this and he decides to become a monster hunter um and he ran into uh he, he was sort of a volatile guy uh and he ran into a, a, a another monster hunter uh this was in the in the i think it was in the, the early 1970s uh ran into a, a, another well-known monster hunter at the time um in the parking lot of a mcdonald's and they got into a shouting match in the and and into a fist fight uh oh, oh no yeah oh you know so these two old coots you know like <laughs> wildly swinging away at each other and you know fortunately n- nobody was really injured uh but uh, that was that was sort of peculiar grover Krantz, who the my book is basically a biography of grover Krantz, who was one of the few trained scientists who actually believed bigfoot was real yeah uh, and he was a specialist in human evolution uh, and he did, uh, along with his uh, sort of Bigfoot publication, uh, he did a lot of straightforward paleoanthropological writing uh, about the uh, the evolutionary development of Homo erectus, uh, one of our, as Homo sapiens, one of our uh, more direct ancestors, fossil mm-hmm. ancestors. And he was convinced that the heavy brow ridges of Homo erectus and like Neanderthals served some kind of purpose, some sort of evolutionary purpose. Uh, And he sort of hit upon the idea that maybe these really pronounced brow ridges acted as a kind of sunscreen, uh, you know, keeping the sun out of their eyes, like wearing a, like a a cap with a a bill on it. Okay. So he created Based upon actual Homer erectus skulls, he he made this kind of prosthetic. I don't, I'm not even sure what to call it. Uh, you know, brow ribs <laughs> that he he would he would glue to his forehead, <laughs> and he would walk around. He he was a professor at uh, at Washington State University, uh, and he would walk around with this thing to to kind of to kind of get a feeling of. Does this sort of make sense? If I have this thing on my head, does it? Block the sun out. So you can just imagine this, you know, guy, professor walking around campus uh, with this thing on. And, and you know, people, just, students just kind of staring at him. Oh, that's that's Professor Krantz. He's a little wacky. So, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's such a great story, though. <laughs> oh, man. And that's yeah, what I need. I, I wonder though, like, I mean, don't like, you know, like some of the other gray apes today, like have pretty heavy brows. It's like, wouldn't you just ask like, you know, somebody who studies gorillas or something? Like, no, or ask the gorilla because, you know, they have the gorillas now that can do sign language. That's so. true. Yeah. They might be able to talk. What does this do for you? <laughs> I'm sure Coco is ready to, you know, talk about something other than bananas. Yeah. Or her. Coco's the one who has the kitten, right? I think so. Yes. <laughs> this is just pretty awesome. Anyway, back to to Richard Owen though. So sort of what what I think we took away from this though is that you know, he this is sort of like a a, a turning point for the scientific community and that they reject this idea of sea serpents but like also, you know, other weird <laughs> what today I guess we would call cryptids or unidentified animals. And this sort of like leads, leaves a, a void that 
becomes cryptozoology, I guess. Like, would you say that that's right? <laughs> yeah, that that's that's around the time I argue that you you, you start to get this major sea change mm -hmm. in, in the scientific mainstream's approach to all this. You know, because we normally the sort of standard history of cryptozoology, if you will, uh, is that it really all sort of begins. Uh, in the 1930s, with the with the excitement about the Yeti in Nepal, uh, and then it's sort of post World War II when Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans sort of coined the term cryptozoology. Mm -hmm. uh, but the 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 notion of of scientific interest in monsters goes all the way back to the classical world. Yeah, uh, you know uh, uh, Aristotle, uh, um, Ovid. Uh, Lucretius, they all wrote about monsters because they're trying to figure out, you know, the, 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 this is in the kind of formative years of, of what will be called biology and zoology and ornithology. And so you have these guys running around uh, who are trying to make sense of the diversity of life on earth mm -hmm. uh, and, and kind of get it into some kind of order. Uh, and, they are familiar with these stories of, you know, for lack of a better expression, monsters. And so for them, they didn't just sort of, you know, discount the whole thing. They too sort of accepted that, well, a lot of, we get a lot of these reports, so there must be something in it. And uh, logically speaking, if these creatures are real, even if some of them are real, they have to fit into this, sort of broader picture of mm -hmm. life on earth. Uh, and if we can find a place for them to fit, uh, we get a better idea of, of how life uh, on earth is organized. And mm -hmm. so they were, they were perfectly uh, willing uh, to accept that these creatures might be real until they discover that they aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the notion of monster hunting for maybe that's not an appropriate, may, maybe monster understanding, <laughs> uh, monster studies yeah. uh, goes, goes way back. And, uh, you know, the, the term cryptozoology is sort of a mid 20th century invention. Okay. But a, but a lot of those guys, not, not just Richard Owen, but Charles Darwin, uh, you know, he was interested in monsters because he was trying to figure out. How do you explain what is referred to at the time as generation? You know, where, how do how do living things reproduce? Why do they keep going? Uh, and Darwin and others realized that while, yeah, you can learn a lot about the development of life by looking at, for lack of a better expression, normal living things, uh, you can also learn just as much, if, if not more, from the sort of aberrations, from the abnormal. Uh, mm -hmm. And so he was very interested in that. In fact, I was doing uh, when I was working on these this project, uh, this long term project. Uh, I was in uh, I was at Cambridge uh, in England because they have all of the vast majority of Darwin's stuff is at Cambridge in their library, mm -hmm. uh, and they have a copy of a book by a French author of of the day, um, and who wrote a book about monsters, animal monsters, human monsters. And Darwin was fascinated by this, and they have Darwin's personal copy uh, wow. of Saint Hilaire, uh, Geoffrey Saint Hilaire. You have to say it with an outrageous French accent. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he was a well-known author. You know, he's still, St. Hilaire is still studied uh, when you study the history of evolution and biology. And he wrote this book about, about uh, abnormal births and things. And Darwin had a personal copy of it, which I've held in my hand. Uh, and it's so cool. <laughs> full of Darwin's marginalia, where he's writing in there saying, you know, this is fascinating. You know, monsters can tell us a lot about the course of evolution. Uh, and so, the, you know, all these all these uh, researchers, all these philosophers uh, did not uh, immediately discount all this. They thought it was just one more part, uh, one more normal part. Studying the abnormal was a normal part of studying the history of biology. Yeah. Uh, and it's not really until the 20th century that in part thanks to the work of Richard Owen that the mainstream begins to you know sort of drift there'll be other stuff that will happen in the 20th century that pushes the mainstream even further away from this uh, but that's sort of the moment where that turn begins uh, yeah and, and what happens is when all these you know again for lack of a better expression mainstream scientists and philosophers start leaving, or or, or, or or lose any faith in any of this stuff. Um, as you said, it leaves this big void. And into that void, you get all these uh, amateur investigators uh, show up. Uh, and that's when we, uh, we really get the birth of modern cryptozoology. Yeah. That's when it stops being a, a part of the realm of the professional and it becomes the, 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 the realm of the amateur hobbyist. Right. Speaking of Darwin, which that is like, so cool that you've gotten to look at some of his personal books and like presumably he had like you got to look at like journals and stuff like that as well oh yeah journals i've seen the famous notebook b uh hmm. in which he makes that very first little drawing of uh, a tree of life where he writes over top hmm. of it i think uh you know one of the one uh, next to the page where Einstein writes E equals MC squared for the first time. Uh, it's <laughs> one of the most famous pages of a notebook in the whole history of science. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I've been lucky enough to see some of that. How cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And so one of the things that, that I had learned with respect to the, the Darwin stuff that you had talked about, I guess, on, on other podcasts was that sort of one of the critical things that, you know, he led to the shift of, of, ideas on was like basically like the idea of like werewolves phasing out because people were like oh well that's not biologically possible to have like a wolf human hybrid <laughs> whereas oh, yeah, like things like bigfoot like like we sure. said are more mm -hmm. plausible <laughs> right yeah well that's you know that uh, i i wrote this that that's one of the things I wrote in that in that article, uh, mm -hmm. "Where Have All the Werewolves Gone?" Uh, that that came from uh, a, a presentation I did back in two thousand nine. It was the hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, mm. and I was I, I, we were in England. For, they had a huge I call it the Darwinopalooza, uh, <laughs> huge conference. You know, with all the leading Darwin scholars in the world were there. Uh, and and I was lucky enough to have been invited to give a a, a paper, and so I I decided to since everybody else was going to be very heavy and serious, uh, <laughs> I, I I wanted to do something a little lighter, and I I came up with this uh, this thing about how Darwin helps. He doesn't realize he you know Darwin never talks about werewolves. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
but you know he his idea of of natural selection uh, showed that well yes all living things are biologically related and 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 different groups evolve out of other groups uh, you you can't have things that are too far apart you know you can't have a dog that suddenly turns into a human or a, a human that suddenly turns into a dog mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, you know I did it really as is uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, not to be taken too seriously. Uh, and the next thing I know, USA Today <laughs> runs this thing. You know, this is yeah. about, you know, this guy who's talking, they called me up for an interview and <laughs> and then, and then eventually, uh, a couple of years after that, the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, I wound up being a question answer. Really? How cool. Um, you know, basically, you know, historian of science Brian Regal said famously uh, that Darwin, that Darwin's uh, uh, work on natural selection helped end belief in which monster, you know, A, fairies, B, uh, you know, this thing, C, or, or werewolves. Uh, and so it was funny because one of my students saw it. Oh, and I didn't even, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen and said, you know, you just, sh- you were just on who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a funny thing that happens sometimes where, you know, I, you, you put huge amounts of work. It takes me like the, the, the Sasquatch book took me five years to write. The Bigfoot book took us, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the Jersey Devil book took us, you know, uh, three years to write. The way historians work, you have to be extremely careful and meticulous and you have to go through the written record and you have to read through boxes full of stuff to, you know, come to your your, your point. Uh, and so it requires a lot of work. I love doing it, but it requires a lot of work. And there'll be times where, you know, I've, I've put huge amounts of work into something mm-hmm. and it gets released and nobody cares about it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I, I make this off the cuff remark about, uh, you know, Darwin and werewolves. And the next thing you know, um, I'm on USA Today. Yeah. You know, so you, you <laughs> never know how this stuff is going to work. Uh, you know, you just do it and you hope maybe somebody out there sees it and, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's super neat. So, yeah, we we came up with just a couple questions, like I said, that we wanted to ask you. Uh, Some of them might just be kind of silly, but my first question (laughs) for you, (laughs) just heads up. (laughs) Um, So, my first question for you, and I'm, I'm assuming I know the answer to this, but you know, you know what assuming does. Do you have a favorite cryptid that you've studied or researched? Um, my my guess would be that I mean it would be Sasquatch or Jersey Devil since you've written books on them. But yeah, is there is there a specific cryptid that you say is your favorite? Uh, probably werewolves. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the 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 werewolf is sort of a, a tragic character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the werewolf uh, doesn't want to be a werewolf. Uh, they they change it if talking about this as if it's a real thing. Um, That's they, sad. <laughs> they, they, they don't change because they want to. They change. They are changed against their will. Mm-hmm. You know, and the they they never get to. They never seem to get to wear you know nice clothes. Their clothes are always sort of ragged. 
you know, uh, as opposed to say vampires who are very stylish, uh, <laughs> they, they get the good clothes. The werewolves don't get the good clothes. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I always assumed the werewolves didn't have the good clothes because, like, you know, they're they were turning into a wolf and like busting out, busting through them yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, why would you wear your good clothes if, like, you knew that was gonna happen? Right. <laughs> oh, that just makes me sad for werewolves. Yeah, yeah. Although maybe you know, um, because I'm not sure if we, if uh, Holly was totally familiar, but do you know why? like werewolves and vampires are always like pitted against mm. one another. Like, is there like a historical thing for that? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I most, what, what people don't realize is that most of what people think is historical werewolf lore uh, is really a product of 20th century cinema. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, even, it, even the, the most famous bit of of werewolf related poetry uh, was a complete fabrication on the part of the the screenwriter for the 1930s uh, werewolf. Uh, huh. even, even a man who is pure at heart and says his prayers at night can become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the <laughs> shines bright. Everybody thinks that's some sort of historic piece of literature, but it's not the guy who wrote the screenplay for the original 1930s movie, The Werewolf, thought it up himself. He, th he thought it would sound cool to have a witch kind of in the middle of the woods say this, and it, was, it would seem very sort of heavy. But yeah. it's all about, uh, the, you know, the silver bullet, the full moon, all that stuff uh, is, is, is mostly made up. The idea of The Werewolf goes all the way back to the classical world uh, uh, with the... the the myth of Lycon, the, the, the king of Corinth, who tries to fool Zeus. He tries to test Zeus to see if Zeus is really as powerful as Zeus claims to be. Uh, and so he, he invites Zeus to dinner uh, and, and gives Zeus a meat pie, uh, which Lycon has made uh, by murdering a child and grinding up the child and making a pie out of him to see if Zeus would recognize it. Uh, and of course, uh, he does because he's, you know, Zeus and uh, he realizes that, you know, he's Zeus is outraged uh, and he curses Lycon by turning him into a wolf. OK, yeah. I mean, there's some aspect of this, like there's like cryptozoology, which is like, I don't know, try, trying to at least take like a, a pseudoscientific look at these things and find some sort of actual evidence that these things exist. But like. With all of these cryptids, there's also the flip side of, you know, there's just magic and like that's how they exist or get around or whatever. So, <laughs> which like to the point of like Zeus turning him into a wolf, it's like, oh, this is just magic or a witch did it or whatever. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> if magic is real, like none of this even matters. <laughs> okay. One other thing that I came across with respect to sort of looking into looking in myself to like origins of cryptozoology and stuff was I came across an article, a 2017 article in uh, cosmos, which basically sort of argued that like cryptozoology is sort of good for science <laughs> in terms of like getting people interested in like conserving 
species and stuff and like in good in terms of like conservation biology uh so this was like from an article in that in cosmos called how the search for mythical monsters can help conservation in the real world and in that article they note that more than 400 new species of mammals had been identified as of 1983. So this was between 1983 and 2017, which is quite a bit. And that there's a mathematical model suggesting that there are 160 mammals that have yet to be identified and like over 3000 amphibians. So apparently there's a lot of little amphibians running around that we don't know about yet. But uh, importantly, they note like given the loss of habitat and like environmental stresses that are so prevalent today that, you know, there's probably a significant number uh, of species that have or will likely go extinct without having ever been identified, which like I could see someone who's into cryptozoology being like, oh, well, they just, you know, went extinct before we could find them. <laughs> so I had a couple questions. One that is silly. Uh, one, we talked about this in our Bigfoot episode, but and they address it in the Wild Thing podcast with respect to Grover Krantz. But she says that like he was sort of in favor of like, if somebody finds a Bigfoot, they've got to kill it because that's the only way that we're going to prove absolutely that it's real is to have the body so would you say that you are a kill bigfoot in the name of science person or a bigfoot conservationist oh well, you can be both well sure prince <laughs> uh, yeah, was a fascinating guy uh, uh -huh. and he outraged a lot of cryptozoologists by saying that very thing uh yeah and he used to he used to go out uh, driving around with a pickup truck and a rifle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To, you know, and his, his plan was, if I see one of these things, I'm going to shoot it. <laughs> because the only way you're really going to prove these things exist is if you drop one on a dissecting table at yeah. a university or a museum. Uh, and you actually have to have one in order to prove they exist. And, okay, sure, you wouldn't want to kill them all. But, you know, you'd have to get one. You'd have to get a type specimen. Uh, and so, yeah, I, sure, I guess, you know, um, <laughs> one of the, one of the reasons why I don't think the real is because, you know, up there in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, in the, in those regions where they do the logging, mm -hmm. uh, you have these big giant trucks barreling down the highways, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with, the, with the huge logs on the back. Uh, and in all these years, uh, no one's ever run over one of these. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, I say, and I say this seriously. You yeah, know, yeah. If, no, no, no they're, totally. If they're really there. We should have had at least one example of one of these giant, uh, you know, 18 wheelers pulling into the local roadside diner with a Sasquatch splattered all across the front grill. <laughs> uh, you know, and that hasn't happened yet. Uh, so, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So you would kill Bigfoot, though. I suppose I would. I, I wouldn't want to do it myself personally if that's yeah. Thing, you know? yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of what we've talked about is like, I think yeah. that I, I mean, obviously I would have to see a body to believe Bigfoot existed, but like, I don't know that I could personally do it. So someone else would have to for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um. Okay. So then the second thing, which, yeah, yeah I think. I think, 
So you'd be the right the person. Email now. Well, it's fine. Um, <laughs> we said it before. This was like episode six or whatever. We haven't gotten any hate mail yet. So it's fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Okay, so second, this idea that, you know, that cryptozoology sort of has this this benefit in terms of getting people interested in, you know, endangered animals or like undiscovered animals in conservation. Do you like feel, do you feel like it has any benefit or are you more on the side of like, no, like pseudoscience is destroying society right now? So <laughs> in terms of anti-vaxxers and all this stuff because I feel like I wildly flip in between it like (laughs) I sort of think like some of the paranormal stuff and like cryptozoology stuff is like oh like you know this is cool like get the kids interested in investigating things and even to go so far as like we talked about with like the Santa Claus episode like it's good for kids to like figure out experiments like that they can figure out whether or not Santa Claus is real and stuff but then I also flip back to like you know, people are ridiculous. I don't know. I just want to get your thoughts on it. <laughs> uh, well, again, you can be both. I um, yeah, <laughs> I, I do believe that a lot of a lot of pseudoscience is, is harmful. Uh, it's not just sort of a fun thing to oh the oh isn't that cute? They think the Earth is flat. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers are a danger. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) If you you saw the article a couple of weeks ago about the guy, I think it was in Wisconsin, the the pharmacist of all people who destroyed the COVID was a he was um, a flat earther. uh, Oh, of course. uh, You know, Christian fundamentalist who believed that that the sky is fake because it's something the government has created <laughs> us from learning about the flat earth. So yeah, that, that there, there is that end of a the spectrum. pharmacist. Uh, that just blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that end of the spectrum is, you know, is certainly uh, dangerous. Uh, there are, yeah. even, you know, I'm, I'm working on this project now about the, the myths of who discovered America. Uh, a, a lot of that dovetails into white supremacy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, re- a, a lot of really terrible stuff. Uh, Bigfoot, probably not so much. Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I no, I agree completely that that I think it's a good thing yeah. that people yeah. go out there in the woods and, and you're not going to find a Bigfoot, I don't think. <laughs> uh, but, but if that gets people interested in conservation and biology and ran, land reclamation, uh, you know, and all of that, then it is a good thing. Yeah. Um, I, as a kid, uh, I watched uh, as, as so many people of my generation who are interested in this sort of thing will say that, you know, um, I, I started watching In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they talked about some wacky stuff there. Uh, but that got me interested in it. it. It got me interested in reading more about history, uh, and it, it it helped lead me down the road to becoming a professional historian. Uh, and so that you know, this idea that you know, if if searching for ghosts, let's say, mm-hmm. gets you thinking about bigger pictures of theology and existence, uh, <laughs> then maybe it's not such a bad thing. Yeah, uh, you know. So there, I I do think there are aspects of this. Uh, that are not 
uh, you know, that are that are down that less dangerous end of the spectrum that are, yeah. actually, you know, we were, uh, we were talking earlier about how uh, all these guys from the classical world, you know, like Aristotle and Pliny and Lucretius and these guys, they're looking for monsters uh, and they didn't find any. But in their search, they essentially invent biology. Yeah, right. Zoology <laughs> and ornithology and geology. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, cryptozoology people haven't done anything like that yet, but that doesn't mean they might not in the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people often ask me, oh, should I, you know, oh, my, uh, my kid wants to go wa- wandering around the woods looking for the Jersey Devil. Should I say, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you you, doing that might lead them to discovering some aspect of the cosmos that we're totally unaware of right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. From that perspective, it's like, yeah, especially with kids, just like encourage their natural curiosity and yeah, indulge it, I guess. (laughs) I well, I'm a geologist, so my parents are my yeah, just let me wander around a lot when I was a kid looking for fossils. So yeah, when, I was, when, I, was, when I was little, <laughs> my um, my parents, my mother was a waitress, my father was a construction worker. You yeah, know, I'm, I'm the first person in my family to 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 be to become an academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was a little kid, um, my father bought me one of those little sets. I don't even know if they make these anymore. The little cardboard box with the bits of minerals and things glued into them with the names on them. Uh, you can still get versions of them for yeah, sure. And, you know, he bought me one of those and I thought it was the greatest thing <laughs> I ever had and I could play with it for hours. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I, 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 I got this little book, which I still have actually floating around here somewhere. Um, they used to make these things called golden guides. Mm-hmm. You know, these tiny, tiny little like three by five soft cover books designed mm-hmm. for kids, each one on a different, there was one on astronomy and there was one on, on, on uh, zoology. And I had the one on rocks and minerals mm-hmm. uh, written by this guy, Herbert Zim, uh, who is largely forgotten today, but probably created more scientists and scholars than any other human being alive. Yeah. Wrote all these. Yeah. Um, he wrote them specifically for kids. And I was fascinated by the the one on rocks and minerals because a- along with the chapters on, you know, what is an igneous rock and what is a volcanic, you know, all that sort of mm-hmm. thing. There were chapters on how to become a geologist. Yeah. How to be a rock hound. Oh, mm-hmm. how cool. Uh, and, and, you know, they had pictures of st- these great little paintings of stuff. And he said, you got to get, if you're going to be a rock hound, if you're going to be a geologist, you got to get a proper geologist hammer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I had never seen one of these before. Uh, and so I went down to Mr. Fingers, which was a, which was one of these kind of stores we don't really have anymore. A kind of a general store where there's, you know, I grew up in the, in, in the Ironbound section of Newark, New Jersey, and then mm-hmm. Kearney across the river, you know, very urban. Uh, and it was kind of like a little it had everything and it, it had a little, a little hardware section and he had these little hammers that looked like the geologist hammer but it was a tack hammer <laughs> uh, okay but, but to me you know my my eight-year-old self 
saw this and said, that looks like that's the thing Herbert Zim told me. Dr. Zim said I should have one of these. Oh. And so I scraped together 75 cents and I bought one and I used, I would go out on, on, on rock hunting expeditions. And, <laughs> and one day my father sees me with this and he says, what, what's with the tack hammer? And I, and I explained and he said, Oh, okay. And like a week later, he says, are you going to go out on your expedition? This I, I would always go out on Saturday morning. Uh, Cause it was a park down the street. And that was my, <laughs> that was my forest primeval was this. <laughs> park. And I said, yeah, I'm going to go rock hunting. He goes here. Well, this might help. And he hands me a brand new East wing. Oh, nice. Geologist hammer. Oh yeah. That, you know, he, he, when I said, where did you get this? He said, I got, I, I got it from a guy off the back of a truck. <laughs> Which is the thing that dads could do in Newark in those days. Yeah. Uh, and I still, in fact, I'm sitting in my home office and I'm, I'm looking at it. Oh. And it's, it's dented and it's dinged and it's rusty and it's got the pits from, you know, a thousand adventures in it. And, you know, that, that, that that's one of the things that I, I guess, you know, you, you, maybe your parents did the same thing, you know, something similar mm -hmm. for you to encourage you. They knew mm -hmm. nothing about science. My parents knew nothing about science. They knew nothing about college. Um, but I guess they thought on the kind of primordial level somewhere that this that, that this was a way I could keep from winding up going down a bad road, uh, which <laughs> is what most of my relatives and most of the people I grew up with did. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so that so when when people say to me, you know, should I let my kid go out in the woods or should I say, yeah, yeah, do that. <laughs> Take him to a museum, buy him books. Uh, yes. So yeah. yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, what you study, and it's funny because we I mentioned that book, Discover of Witches, and like you know the fact that she's like a historian of science and does this like stuff with like old alchemical texts and stuff and they talk about her like I forget what library she's at the Bodleian library which is at Oxford. Oxford at Oxford yeah I like mean, yeah. yeah like checking out you know different texts from there and stuff and looking at them anyway that's beside the point um, <laughs> but I think like before that book like I I mean yeah like I shouldn't have been surprised but like I was like I don't think I realized that historians of science existed and then it was like we started doing the podcast and like got in touch with you and it's like here's a real life person who does this and like you're at this very interesting intersection between like you know science and history and and culture and you know even like some of this stuff with like early settlers in america early people in america like it's like an archaeology or you know anthropology thing so yeah it's like it's pretty fascinating it is <laughs> yeah it's pretty fascinating and it's just like a super cool field to be in so here we are once again with a guest and i'm thinking like what have i done with my life but anyway <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still time you can catch up yes um okay uh so i think that is sort of everything that I was hoping to cover. Um, Brian, did you have anything else specific you wanted to talk about? Um, or, you know, is there anything specific that you'd like to plug, let people know where they can find you, stuff like that? 
Sure. If you if you want to read my all my books are on Amazon. Uh, the Sasquatch book is in paperback. The Jersey Devil book is in paperback. Um, I do tons of op eds and you know uh, scholarly, you know peer review articles and popular articles. And if you just Google my name, you'll get my Kane University website. Uh, and you can go through there and you can you can download a bunch of my articles and things and listen to podcasts that I've been on mm-hmm. um, when this is available. I'll, you know, I'll be putting it on there, too. Oh, um, great. <laughs> so you can find out all about the, the weird stuff that I do. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to if anybody out there wants to study uh, the history of pseudoscience, uh, Kane University is a terrific school for year. Uh, state liberal arts college university here in New Jersey. Uh, we have one of the best history departments in the region. Uh, and, uh, you know, give me a, yeah. give me a shout. Yeah. Go study cool stuff with Brian. <laughs> um, yeah. Is, is Kane, um, is it undergraduate only, or is it, is it master's and PhD as well? No, we have, we have the whole thing that I'm in the department of history uh, mm-hmm. We do not, unfortunately, have a graduate program in history yet. Okay. Um, but uh, our undergraduate uh, uh, program is is really excellent. We have I- incredible faculty, uh, great facilities. The school just built us a purpose built history center uh, wow. last year, uh, and uh, w- which is where our offices are, the department offices, our special collections is in there. And uh, so it's it's terrific. It's a great time to to study this. And there's so much of it going on uh, out there uh, in the world that we need more people studying history. We need more people studying science. We need more people studying pseudoscience. Uh, it, yeah. it, it is a matter of national survival. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. One of the reasons I'm so glad we got to have you on here is is yeah, like we're you know, on the science side. And, and sometimes it's <laughs> easy to see those. It's, it's cool to see the intersection of those fields for sure, because I think that's, that's really important. So yeah. Paige, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I think that you've answered everything that we've had and um, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. If you want me to come back again, just let me know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like I said, the stuff with the the Leaf Erics and stuff and everything. It's like that is a whole other podcast episode. So I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get as much chance to talk about it today, but That's for okay. sure <laughs> in the future. <laughs> All right. Well, um, as always, we'll be sure to post links to some of the articles that we have read of yours, Brian, as well as your, I think it's, you have a website, right? Yeah. Okay. If you just Google my name, the, the usually the first thing that comes up is my university webpage. Okay. All right. Um, so yeah, we'll link you to that and you can find all of his books and stuff there. So that wraps up this week's episode. Tune in next time for a full episode of Short and Spookies. If you're not sure what that is, in previous episodes, we used to do Short and Spookies to wrap up the episode. And so this time we're just going to do a bunch of those and push them all together as one episode. If you like our show, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Spooky SciPod, Facebook at Spooky Science Sisters, and at our website, SpookySciencesisters.com. If you have any questions about previous topics, ideas for future episodes, or any questions, email us at SpookySciencesisters at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and stay spooky. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one 
at straightupstrange.com. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 